From Alaska Team Media Institute, this is Zoom Room, a youth-produced podcast where we zoom into a different theme or topic through interviews and conversations relevant to us, the youth of Alaska. I'm Atme producer Zen Rogers, and for this episode, we're going to be talking about... Uh-oh! Earthquake! Okay. Ooh. As we all know, earthquakes can be a pretty common aspect of life in Alaska. From tiny little tremors that some people don't even notice, to big ones like the 7.0 quake in November 2018. So for this episode, we're going to dig into the earth to learn more about seismic activity. At me senior producer Daisy Carter spoke with Rob Witter, a research geologist with the U.S. Geological Survey. He talks about studying the impacts and evidence of earthquakes, tsunamis, ghost force, and what he calls geological detective work. So, in your USG bio, it says that you conduct geological detective work. Can you kind of explain what geological detective work looks like? Yeah. I'm a a seismologist of sorts, but I'm kind of like, if you know what a paleontologist looks for, bones and evidence of, you know, dinosaurs in the geologic record, I look for the impacts and evidence of earthquakes in the geologic record. And what that looks like is I mainly work along the coast. And and one, if you live around Anchorage, Alaska, what it looks like is ghost forests. And many people are familiar with the uh, the dead trees, the ghost forest at Girdwood. Those ghost forests are all along the coastline in Prince William Sound and, and parts of uh, the Kenai Peninsula. And those ghost forests represent trees and forests that were submerged below tide level in 1964. And they were killed. The trees were killed by the intrusion of salt water into their roots because most of those trees were spruce trees in the ghost forest at Girdwood and and elsewhere. Like Resurrection Bay, for example, down near Seward has a lot of uh, examples of ghost forests growing along the coast just at the beach or even in the beach, you can see these kind of skeletal remains of old spruce trees. And what happens is before the 1964 great earthquake, they were growing happily above the highest tides. That's where spruce trees like to grow and they thrive there. But if they drop and their roots get poisoned by salt water, they'll die. And that's what happened. In 1964, the, the great magnitude 9.2 earthquake dropped much of the coast in this region by four, five, six, maybe eight feet and uh, caused the ocean water to rise and flood near shore areas and, and drown these coastal forests. So that's that's one thing of what it looks like. That's really interesting. I didn't even know what ghost forests were. I was I thought you were talking about like white trees and they're like ghosts. <laughs> Yeah, well, next time you drive down to Girdwood, have a look and, and check out. They are white, and they're the skeletons of old an old forest. Wow, that's amazing. Again, as I mentioned kind of earlier, I know as a kid, I was very interested in becoming a ge- geologist and a paleontologist, too, digging up bones. Then I discovered that I was more interested in writing, and now I'm a journalism major at UAA. Um, I was wondering what made you kind of become interested in being a geologist? I became interested 
because I just love the landscape and I'm, I'm outdoorsy. I like to hike and get outside. And uh, when I was in college, I was a little bit lost. I thought I wanted to be a biology major, but I took some courses in geology and um, it kind of captivated me. It captured my interest because I felt like the tools and the methods used in geology helped one understand the architecture of the earth is the way I put it to myself. I really liked the idea of how the earth was structured and how what built it and and what we could deduce from studying the landscape of the earth. And I do a lot of that today in my job for the USGS. Again, something that I'm kind of interested in is, um, do we have the technology to predict earthquakes? Right now we don't. Scientists for probably thousands of years have tried to predict earthquakes. And there have been a lot of theories and ideas that maybe animals can sense them or that there might be some precursory signal uh, that would uh, tip us off to the, when the next earthquake could happen. But as far as I know, and, and I've talked to some of the leading seismologists in the world, we can't predict when they'll happen. And we can't predict exactly where they'll happen at a particular time. The thing that we do pretty well is we can forecast, kind of like a weather, a weather person can forecast. We can say that there's a, a certain probability that an earthquake will occur along a plate boundary in, in a certain time. So that's what the science is focused on right now. But we can't say that there will be an earthquake on January 17th, 2022. We just don't have, we don't have the capability to do that. Yeah, that would be crazy that if on January, whatever date you said, 2022, there'd be an earthquake. <laughs> that would be crazy. And I, I actually kind of hesitated to even put a date down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can you walk me through an average day kind of being a geo geologist, um, you know, pre-COVID and then, you know, now during COVID? Yeah. Well, gosh, I do a lot of work in the office, writing up reports and papers, um, planning for field work, and um, also interacting with, with other scientists. And one of the great things about my job working for the USGS is I get to interact with college professors who, who share interests or, or maybe have collaborative interests with the work that I do. And I also am privileged to work with just a, a whole variety of really excellent scientists in the USGS. And I feel like surrounding myself with high caliber scientists really make me a better scientist. So I'm, I'm very fortunate and, uh, and appreciative and grateful to be where I'm at right now. A typical day in the office would be basically writing writing up the results of the research that I do. So a lot of uh, studying maps and uh, satellite imagery, for example, or it may involve uh, uh, analyzing topographic data. It may involve lab work. For example, a lot of the work I do um, attempts to to date the age of a, a geologic unit using radiocarbon dating. Um, so a lot of that happens in the field, in, in, in the office. But what I really love, and I would say I probably spend two months, maybe two and a half months of 
work time in the field. And that might be going out to islands in Prince William Sound or traveling to Southeast Alaska to study the Fairweather Fault or traveling out to the Aleutian Islands or Kodiak Island to study evidence for tsunamis out there. And these fieldwork trips um, on, a, on a day in the field, I would be being in a helicopter, doing an overflight of Montague Island, or I might be on a fishing boat transiting from Dutch Harbor to Sanak Island or something, or I might be in a float plane flying to Krillin Lake along the Fairweather Fault. And, and then once we get there, we may camp out in the field in a tent with field food and, and uh, equipment to study the geology in very remote settings for about two weeks. So those are some examples of the typical day in the life of a geologist. Yeah. So um, your field work is just kind of just going out to these faults and just observing how they move or is, is there something else to that? Well, well, yeah. So like, for example, the Fairweather Fault is the fastest slipping strike slip fault in the world. And it's in Southeast Alaska in Glacier Bay National Park. And we've done two studies uh, of the Fairweather Fault where we actually dig trenches across the fault to study when they slipped last. So it's muddy work. It, it uses really basic tools like shovels and uh, scrapers. And then we describe things. We describe what we see in this trench that we've, we've excavated on in our field notebooks or maybe larger format posters. And that's all based on the office work that I described earlier, where we've studied the topography that the fault generates through earthquake deformation. When a fault slips, the Fairweather fault slips horizontally. One side moves to the right relative to the other side, but it doesn't only uh, cause deformation in that horizontal sense. Little wiggles in the fault will cause parts of the crust to uplift or subside. And by studying those, those features in the landscape, we can learn about how the earthquake deformed the earth. How, and then we look at the layers generated by the earthquakes to study how often the earthquakes may have happened in the past. So that's like a case studying the Fairweather Fault. But when I go out to sites in the Aleutians, we're studying the impacts of great earthquakes on the Aleutian Alaska subduction zone, like the 1964 magnitude 9.2 earthquake. In the 20th century, there were, gosh, how many? There were like a handful of earthquakes that ruptured almost the entire many thousand kilometer length of the Alaska subduction zone from basically from uh, Port Valdez almost to Russia. There was the, the 1946 uh, Unimac Island earthquake was a magnitude 8.6. Before that, there was a 1938 earthquake in the, in the Samiti Islands. Of course, there was the 1964 Great Earthquake. Then there was the 1965 uh, Rat Islands earthquake, which is also magnitude uh, 8.7, I think. Then there was, uh, oh, there was a 1957 earthquake that was a magnitude 8.6 out in the Andrianoff Islands. So um, we've studied... Uh, the areas of those historic earthquakes and important thing that we want to discover there are, are the, the impacts of the tsunamis that are generated by these great earthquakes. And they can have impacts not only in Alaska, but, but far 
uh, a field across the Pacific Ocean. And, and for example, the 1946 earthquake generated tsunami that that uh, caused a number of deaths in Hilo, Hawaii. You kind of mentioned early about how, you know, we don't really have the technology to predict earthquakes, but you can kind of predict like kind of like a forecast of um, of earthquakes that can happen. Is there a specific like earthquake season that, you, that maybe or not really? There isn't an earthquake season. Other people, I think, have have uh, wondered whether the moon can cause uh, earthquakes. And, and that's kind of been debunked. Let me tell you, if there was a way to predict earthquakes that was reliable, I think you would know about it because there's a lot of people asking those questions. And and so far, they haven't figured it out. Yeah, I'm mainly asking for my mom because she's still a little shook about the last earthquake that happened. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. That, that was a bit that was a that was a doozy. Um, yeah. The more you uh, learn about earthquakes, though, the more you can start to understand what's happening. And uh, oftentimes people can kind of sense it's coming because the P wave or the pressure wave from the earthquake has arrived, but you don't really know it's an earthquake yet. Because when you know you're in an earthquake, it's usually after the S wave or the shear wave has arrived. And the difference there is that the P wave travels faster through the crust than the S wave. So an earthquake is composed of many different types of seismic waves, but the P wave comes first. And, uh, and that usually is perceived by us as a little bump, or it might just, if it's, you know, if it's not a very big earthquake, it might just kind of make us alert, but the real shaking that happens is caused by the S wave. And if you want to know the difference between a P wave and S wave, think of a, of a slinky. Everybody knows what a slinky is, right? Well, if you took a slinky between two people and stretched it out, and then one person scrunched up one end of the slinky and let it go, it would produce a wave that propagated in the same direction as the slinky stretched to your friend at the other end. So the direction of travel would be in the same direction as, um, as the, uh, the slinky was stretched. And that's that's the type of motion and wave that's formed by a P wave when an earthquake happens. But an S wave is an earthquake. S wave is a shear wave. And that's similar to what you would create if you were to take that same slinky and shift it side to side really quickly. You would produce an S shaped wave that would travel down to your friend and reflect off that person and back to you. And that's a much larger uh, displacement and it's much more noticeable. But the travel time or the speed of those two waves is different. The P wave travels faster. That's what you sense. Um, that's, that's what dogs will sense immediately. Oftentimes, that's why you say your animals will sense the earthquake before you, to, you do, because then the S wave will come a little bit later, maybe a fraction of a second later. But um, that's what causes most of the, of the shaking and the damage in the case of big earthquakes. Yeah, I think I remember learning that example in, in science class. <laughs> Have you made any interesting sort of discoveries in your line of work? Mm, I think something that's interesting, an uh, interesting result from our work in the Aleutians is that there are places where really, really big earthquakes don't seem to be generated. And this is a place in the Shumigan Islands that is 
pretty much the only place along the Aleutian Alaska subduction zone that hasn't produced a giant earthquake. And um, for a long time, this, this area is called the Shumigan Seismic Gap. Seismologists felt like that was in the next place to expect a big earthquake. Um, but with the advent of satellite geodesy, same sort of technology we have on our phones, you know, you can use satellites to uh, tell well where you are. Geophysicists use satellites to measure how fast a certain location on the Earth is moving. And by measuring that, we can tell whether or not strain is being stored on the fault that, that makes the subduction zone and whether or not it's locked and loading for a big earthquake. So it turns out that the Shumigan Islands overlie a part of the subduction zone fault that appears to not be loading that elastic uh, strain. It seems to be slipping, mostly slipping. There are small earthquakes that happen. For example, small by small, I mean a magnitude 7.8 earthquake, which happened uh, last summer that released some of the strain, but satellite geodesy is showing us that some of the convergence between the Pacific plate offshore and Alaska is just slipping uh, due to a process called creep. Or in other words, the two tectonic plates are just kind of passing by one another without locking up and storing strain and getting ready to, to produce a really big earthquake. So that's something we've discovered in the in the Shumigan Islands, which is pretty interesting. Nice. That that is interesting. What's something that's kind of like scared or shocked you as a geologist? The really the short response time that people have to avoid a a tsunami. That that's really kind of the scariest thing. And so in 1964, something like 80 percent of the fatalities were caused by the tsunami, but 80% of those people who died by the tsunami were, were killed by tsunamis generated by submarine landslides in uh, fjords like Resurrection Bay, Port Valdez, um, Passage Canal. So Whittier and Seward and, and Valdez, they all got devastated by tsunamis that were generated by the collapse of these um, these these tidal deltas. They're big rivers that flow out from the from the glaciated valleys, and they carry down a lot of gravel and sand, and they form these huge deltas that are uh, submerged. You know, at the heads of these fjords, like Resurrection Bay, for instance. But those deltas are unconsolidated, saturated with water, and very susceptible to slumping and failure if you shake them with a big big earthquake. And that's what happened. It happened in all three of those fjords and elsewhere in Prince William Sound. And the result is uh, the generation of, of a huge wave that arrives on land while the ground is still shaking because of the earthquake. And that's what really killed a lot of people is that they just had no time to escape. And if that's why it's really important if you're in a seismically active area and you you live by the shoreline, if you feel shaking that lasts, you know, longer than, than you would otherwise be comfortable to endure, you should get to high ground as fast as you can. 
Wow, that is pretty scary that, um, that yeah, tsunamis are, are no joke. It's very scary. <laughs> yeah, they're no joke. And remember, the best warning is is the earthquake. Earthquake shaking is the best warning. Don't wait for local authorities to tell you to evacuate. If you feel a big, big earthquake, and you'll know it because you'll be scared. Most of us are scared or startled or at least, you know, we, we get alert when an earthquake happens. You're down by the ocean, get to high ground. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. I was in school when the 7.1 earthquake happened back in 2018. Mm-hmm. I remember the first words that uh, that I said, like once I got out of school, because they, um, they evacuated everyone. And the first thing I said when we finally got outside was, that was so cool! Because I <laughs> it was just so cool to kind of like feel an, like that big of an earthquake, um, especially at school. Um, so I was just wondering where you were kind of in the uh-huh. 2018 7.1 earthquake. Yeah, I was in my car and I didn't feel it. So I missed it. And I was, <sighs> I was bummed out. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that, that we had an earthquake because I saw snow falling out of the trees and, and I stopped and I went, well, it's not windy. It wasn't a windy day. And I said, why did that happen? Why is there snow falling out of the trees? And then as I was stopped, I noticed a telephone line kind of whip back and forth and the snow on the telephone line fell off. That was the S wave, right? So then I immediately knew, oh, we just had a big earthquake. And then I was on the phone for the next probably two hours. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Oh my goodness. But the funny thing about that is, is I was, I was driving to work and, and I thought, oh, I got to get to work. I got to get to work. But just as, you know, it was probably a few minutes later, I was, you know, so eager to get to work and find out what the heck happened. I went, wait, I got to check on my house. So I turned <laughs> around and went back and I was really lucky. We didn't, we didn't have any damage to our house. We really lucked out. I, you know, I, and I'm grateful for that because I know a lot of people, a lot of people uh, lost, lost some things to, due to damage. So, um, yeah, so you kind of said like what was going through your mind, so yeah, what was kind of your like week, like your earthquake kind of like week? Because I know it was probably like a week or two until kind of things kind of started to get back to yeah. normal. So what was it like for you to kind of like <laughs> study earthquakes and to kind of go back to work after you yeah. had the big shake? Yeah, I was really busy that week. And it what did it happen on a Friday, I think? Was it a Friday? Yeah, or, yeah I think it was a Friday. Was. It was really, really important to make sure everybody was safe. Um, that was the most important thing. So at our office, there had been some leaks in the air conditioning system. So they had closed the office. Um, so we were all, it was kind of like COVID. We were all kind of working remotely. My main mission was to um, try to document immediately what happened. Look for evidence of ground deformation, landslides, liquefaction. So uh, working with our, our leadership at the USGS, we got a helicopter and two of us flew around the Anchorage and um, Matanuska Valley area, taking photographs to document exactly that, the, the damage that the earthquake caused, mainly to the natural environment. We didn't really focus on um, damage related to homes or, and, and there was a great amount of that, but for example, there was a big landslide down on um, near Rainbow, 
Rainbow Peak, I think, down towards uh, on along Turnigan Pass. There, there was some uh, liquefaction out in the mud flats, and there was quite a bit of liquefaction out along the mouth of the Little Susitna River that we documented. There was some of the damage caused to the highways and roads in, in Wasilla in particular and along uh, Minnesota Avenue in Anchorage. And we documented some of that. So yeah, that's what we did immediately afterwards. And then a team of landslide and liquefaction experts from Golden, Colorado came up to Alaska. And then I kind of helped them access different sites so they could investigate uh, the, the, the damage that we photographed from, from the sky. You know, we mentioned before earlier the the ghost forests, but has there any, been any other impacts of the 1964 earthquake? Yeah, the 1964 earthquake really kind of established the uh, it, it it I don't want to say established, but it it kind of strengthened some of the ideas around plate tectonics that were that were new at the time in the in the 60s. Um, there were kind of controversies over how and where earthquakes happened. And uh, the studies that George Plafker did in Alaska after the 1964 earthquake um, made for a very convincing case that, that uh, the earth is made of tectonic plates that move relative to one another. And along their edges, they get stuck and uh, produce earthquakes and volcanoes and, uh, when these faults are under the ocean, they generate really, really big tsunamis. So much of the uh, geologic hazards that we understand today about uh, great earthquakes and tsunamis really was first discovered in George Plafker's work on the 1964 earthquake. That's really, that's really interesting. That's awesome that they kind of got to um, learn from the earthquake. If another earthquake like that uh, I think it was a 9.1 earthquake. 9.2 in 64, yeah. Yeah, 9.2. Do you think that Anchorage is prepared for another earthquake like that, like now? Well, let's consider the magnitude 7.1 2018 Anchorage earthquake. I would ask you, did you feel like the community was prepared? How did the community handle that? I mean... For the first couple hours, it definitely felt like a zombie movie that everyone was just kind of like ravaging like through stuff. I think I went yeah. to Golden. I think I went to Golden Donuts, and ever they were just giving away donuts because they were because <laughs> they were going to spoil. Yeah, um, that's great. I didn't know about that. <laughs> yeah, but um, I think it was just a lot of miscommunication too. Because not to rat on my school, but there was a lot of just confusion at my school like should we let students leave should we not let students leave mm -hmm. um should we be on the phone lines to let emergency like like people with actual like emergencies call right so there was chaos there certainly was and there was there was a lot of damage a lot of people's homes were damaged but here's the thing anchorage and this isn't this doesn't apply to all of alaska but anchorage uses modern building codes codes and enforces them in the municipality. And um, I think there's good evidence that shows that those modern seismic building codes prevented uh, greater damage to the built environment. So did we lose any large buildings? No, no buildings collapsed. No one died. 
And I think that's a real testament to the earthquake preparedness in Anchorage municipality and the, the heads up smart attitudes of, of the community. I mean, of course, everybody's scared and confused and upset. I mean, who isn't during a big earthquake, but we all came together and, um, we worked together and we made sure everybody was safe. And because we have modern building codes in place, uh, I think I think that was a really great example of um, how our community is resilient. There's always room for improvement and there's always uh, uh, things that we can identify um, that we could do better in the future during it during a bigger event. But uh, I was really proud about uh, how Anchorage uh, handled the earthquake. I know that when when the earthquake hit, I think everyone in the Anchorage area got a warning that there was that there was a tsunami warning. So I was just wondering, do you think there's ever a chance that a tsunami could hit Anchorage? I'm really glad you brought that up because that was the next topic I wanted to discuss. There are some communication lines of communication that need to be ironed out and there are various agencies and institutions responsible for that. Um, and as far as I know, they're working on that. But the broad, the broadcast for a tsunami uh, warning or whatever it was that we heard on the radio, because I heard it too, I think it startled people. It caused people to react in ways that um, weren't useful and in some cases might have been more than unproductive. For 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 instance, I, I heard a lot of people uh, drove up to the Chugach, like they drove up to the mountains because they thought there was going to be a giant tsunami. There's there's probably very little uh, hazard of a giant tsunami hitting hitting Anchorage, and the problem is, is there hasn't been a formal study. So we don't really know if there is the potential for a big underwater landslide, for example, um, that might be triggered by by strong shaking. But there's it's not really the right environment to produce a tsunami. Cook Inlet is very shallow. There isn't a lot of material that could generate a, a large tsunami in uh, in Cook Inlet. So the probability is very low. Um, I think the biggest thing that people and the community needs to do is to make it clear that if you are down near the shoreline or near the water, wherever you are, and you feel strong shaking from an earthquake, it's a good idea to get to high ground because you can never be too sure. But if you live up on the bluff overlooking Ship Creek or Cook Inlet or something like that, you're probably uh, well above any sort of waves that might be generated. And another thing to point out, in 1964, in the magnitude 9.2 earthquake, there was no uh, measurable tsunami in Cook Inlet. That's good to know. I know that was a big thing that, that again, also kind of just disrupted. And I think that's also kind of what caused, yeah. like, a lot of the chaos. Like, I was, yeah, I was, yeah. I was, I live in Eagle River, and I went to school in Anchorage, so it was so I was probably in traffic for almost six hours because so many people were trying to get to higher ground. Right. Yeah. And that's the that's the problem is that people are evacuating for no reason and it can cause 
traffic jams, traffic accidents, and delays. And if you know, if you have, if you need to get somewhere to say take care of your child or 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 a friend or a relative, you know, that's that's creating a problem when there really doesn't need to be. There really is a low probability of a tsunami in Anchorage, but I just um, I, I always err on the side of caution and try to practice uh, safety whenever I, I feel an earthquake and I'm down near the water. I'm going to get to high ground. And I think that's important because we all go to Whittier or we may go down to Homer or, you know, on vacation or if we're going boating. And it's just important to kind of get into that habit because we have a lot of earthquakes around here and uh, you never know what might happen. So going from earthquakes and going back to kind of more prediction-y kind of questions, do you know if there's any projections of another large earthquake happening um, in Alaska? There's no predictions, and I can refer you to the National Seismic Hazard maps for Alaska that we're, we are updating right now. And I don't know those numbers uh, at the top of my head right now, but we live in earthquake country, so you should expect to feel an occasional magnitude four or five earthquake. Uh, those things, those things happen often and frequently. So you should be prepared for some of those. And uh, you know, a magnitude seven, I think, might happen at least once a year in Alaska. Um, and we've had ours. And the next one may be way out on the Aleutian chain, but you can't really predict. It could happen here too. So, to your knowledge, what's been the biggest I guess, most damaging um, earthquake that's hit Alaska, not just specifically Anchorage? I think it would have to be the 1964 Great Alaska Earthquake. Yeah, magnitude 9.2. That's the second largest earthquake recorded in, in history. The biggest earthquake was the 1960 Chile earthquake. Uh, it was a magnitude 9.5. What can we learn from the past earthquakes that will help us better understand how we react to further earthquakes? Uh, I think it's it, it it centers on community resilience to to the damages, the hazards that are caused by earthquake ground shaking, settlement or liquefaction, landslides triggered by the shaking, and tsunamis generated by deformation of the seafloor. All these processes are produce hazardous results to the built environment and to to communities that, that um, are built on, on earthquake country, in particular coastal communities that are vulnerable to tsunamis. So strong building codes that uh, design buildings to, to withstand uh, seismic shaking are important. And those are, uh, are devised from studying historical earthquakes and how they damaged buildings. And then studying tsunamis and how far inland they run and what kind of flooding they do is important to uh, predict through computer modeling where future earthquakes may generate tsunamis that would flood existing communities and um, as a result generate what we can do as communities and as, as scientists is generate evacuation maps and preparedness plans to help people know how to get out of harm's way when they feel an earthquake and expect a tsunami. 
So the state, the state of Alaska um, has a website that posts tsunami evacuation maps for um, almost all of the coastal communities vulnerable to tsunami inundation. Well, um, that's all the questions I have. Um, is there anything else you want to add about earthquakes or tsunamis or preparing for earthquakes, tsunamis? Hey, we live in earthquake country. It's great that we're thinking about it. And actually, I would I would say it's good to have earthquakes every once in a while, small ones, as long as they don't cause a lot of damage or hurt anybody because it keeps us aware. And it's important because you never know when the next big one might happen. On your USGS website, it says that you conduct um, like geological detective work to uncover clues. Mm -hmm. Have you ever thought about changing it instead of uncover clues, you get to the core of clues? <laughs> Ooh, I like that. Um, I'm a I'm a ditch digger. I'm a I'm a post hole digger. I only study the just the dirt <laughs> and the earth, and the core actually means something to a geologist. Um, okay. so I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to use that word because then you'd have, uh, these geophysical modelers to say, what do you know about the core? You just study the dirt. <laughs> yeah. I just thought that was a funny anecdote that I, <laughs> that I thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was really good talking to you. Right. That was At Me Senior Producer Daisy Carter speaking with research geologist Rob Witter. You've been listening to Zoom Room, a production of Alaska Teen Media Institute. Our show's theme music is by Kendrick Whiteman. The interview was edited by Ormond Alois. Sound design by Tyler Felson. Alaska Teen Media Institute is based in Anchorage, Alaska. We would like to acknowledge the Denina people whose land we work on. Many thanks to the supporters of our podcast, including Rosie Robards and Nat Hers. The views expressed in this program do not necessarily represent the views of our sponsors. Thank you to our listeners who contribute to our programs and help us leverage additional funds and grants. If you'd like to support Youth Voices in Alaska and help keep our podcast going, you can support us through Patreon. It's a membership platform that makes it easy for you to support creative endeavors like AtMe. Just go to patreon.com slash alaskateenmedia. You can also help out by subscribing to, rating, or writing the review of our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Every little bit helps us get our stories out there. And if you are a youth ages 13 to 24 who's interested in becoming a member of our team, go to alaskateenmedia.org join to find out more. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. For Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Zen Rogers. Thanks for listening. Hopefully some of those work.